I do need to, I knew, do need your help after service. We have to set up some chairs if that would be okay for the men's breakfast. So if you could do that. I just want to remind myself. Saturday. Saturday at 8.30 is our men's breakfast, and you are all invited. And it's eat all you can eat <laughs> or until it's all gone. So just so you know that. Um, I have a prayer request here from a friend. This is what it says. Um, could you please pray for Adam and Silas at 5 p.m. India time Wednesday on the way back from visiting believers in a village about 25 kilometers uh, from our um, our metal city. That's the name of the city. A goat ran out into the road, and there was an accident. Silas had some kind of fracture, but I don't know where, as he hasn't seen a doctor. And Adam was quite a, has quite a bit of scrapes and scratches on his legs and some swelling. I will know more later tonight, but... Uh, but thought I would ask you to pray for them and their families. I think this is also a bit scary for Adam's wife, Eve. Get it? Adam and Eve. Because she is pregnant and midway through the second trimester. These are opportunities to internalize Romans 5, 1 through 5. Would somebody look that up and read it, please? Romans 5, 1 through 5. These are opportunities to internalize Romans 5, 1 through 5, which has been an important theme in the last six months. So I'd like someone to read that, please, out loud, if you would. Amen. So these are opportunities to internalize Romans 5, 1 through 5, which has been an important theme in the last six months. Uh, in Islam, there is a theological position that if you are living right, godly, a, a right godly life, that, you, that only good will come into your life. There is really no theology for suffering except that God is punishing you. These believers are learning, listen to this, these believers are learning to trust God in spite of hardship. And I am learning how to coach them to not trust in me, not trust in doctors or safe plans, and certainly not to worship security or safety, but to trust in our God who is pursuing his plans on earth and that suffering is a part of joining God in his plans. I will let you know when I hear more, but I appreciate you joining us in prayer. So let's pray, shall we? Brother Roy, do you want to pray? Could you? Father God, we come to you in the holy name of your precious Son, Jesus Christ, our Lord and Savior. Father, first we ask you to forgive us for our sins. We pray for those that Pastor was talking about. We ask you to forgive them their sins, Lord. Father, please, God, continue to reveal yourself to, to, uh, to those people, Father God. Let them know, God, that you are in the midst with them that everything that they do, you are right there, God. And let them experience your love, Father. Let them be able to share others about your love, my Heavenly Father. Father, we thank you for however this crisis turned out, that you will be glorified, Lord. Thank you so much, God. Thank you so much, Lord. We love you. They love you, God. You are a God of love. And thank you, Jesus. In Jesus Christ's name we pray. Amen. So imagine that. Here are these new believers who are out ministering and doing the work of the Lord and they get in an accident. And one of the questions that they probably ask themselves is, God, why would you allow? We, we, we are coming to you. We're worshiping you. We're now Christians. And why would this happen to us now? On top of that, from a worldview that they live in where there is no theology of suffering, which is the Old Testament mindset. Job in particular, Job's three friends were constantly asking him, what have you done wrong to deserve this? And Job would constantly say, I haven't done anything wrong. I'm blameless before God. And they will no, you must have done something wrong. And so, um, and I like what my friend says, that he's teaching these, these young men 
that, uh, the, that, that suffering is a part of the theology of God. It's a part of the process that God takes us through, and they're learning that. And then as the missionary that they look to, he's constantly teaching them not to trust in him. The American missionary at that, right? Interesting stuff. Interesting stuff. Um, we're in Genesis chapter 49. Genesis chapter 49. Um, Woody Allen said this, It's not that I'm afraid to die. I just don't want to be there when it happens. He will be. He's not going to miss that appointment. No one does. Ten people out of ten are going to die. Okay? No one gets to escape death. You going to get raptured? Of course, unless the rapture happens. And every time I say that, I think, well, unless you get raptured out of here. That, that's true, too. Um, and so um, as we look back at chapter 49 before we get into chapter 50, I wanted to just look at, at, at just very briefly two of these sons of Jacob and the, the prophecies that he spoke about them. If you look at chapter 49 in verse 8, Jacob is speaking about his sons and the livelihood that they would have. And he says this about Judah. He says, uh, your brothers will praise you and will defeat your en- you will defeat your enemies. All your relatives will bow before you. Judah is a young lion that has finished eating its prey. Like a lion, he crouches and lies down like a lioness. Who will dare to rouse him? The scepter will not depart from Judah nor the ruler's staff from his descendants until the coming of the one to whom it belongs. And your translations may say, until Shiloh comes. And so there's a prophecy that says that there is a leadership that is going to be, through this son Judah, there are going to be leaders that come up. And it would be some 640 years later that it it was partially fulfilled when King David sat on the throne because he was the the first of the great, great kings, well, Saul, Uh, But then David was the first of the great uh, dynasty of kings that Judah had, just like he had said. And so Jesus also, some 1,600 years after that, Jesus also was referred to as Shiloh. That name means the one whose right is, the one whose right it is. And that title always meant that of the Messiah. And so... So God, in, in Genesis chapter 49, predicts that there would be one who would come uh, uh, and, and, and predicts that there would be, that Judah would always be sort of on that throne until Shiloh comes, meaning uh, until Jesus comes. And so um, from David, King David, until the time of the Herods, which if you know your Bible in the book of Matthew, we read about King Herod and all of that and that whole group of kings. From David until Herod, Um, A prince of Judah was pretty much always uh, in charge over Israel, even during the captivity uh, of the nation of Israel in Babylon. Daniel was from the tribe of Judah. That's kind of interesting. So the promise was was that Israel would keep this scepter until Shiloh comes. Um, uh, But then here's what happened. Um, in, in 7 A.D., let me just read it. Uh, after the foreign masters during this period, Israel was limited to self-rule until 7 A.D. Then under Herod and the Romans, the right to capital punishment was taken away. So they saw themselves in charge, and then all of a sudden in 7 A.D., the Romans said, you are no longer able to uh, 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 do capital punishment. That's why um, uh, the, the, the religious leaders took Jesus to Herod. Uh, to Pontius Pilate because they weren't able to crucify Christ. Because he said, you have a law, you deal with them. And they said, we're not allowed to crucify. So the scepter, in one sense, was taken from them. And here's what that meant. The rabbis considered it a disaster because they no longer had that rule, and uh, and they considered it unfulfilled scripture uh, because the last king or the last part of the scepter had passed away and the last bit of authority was gone from Judah, and the Messiah did not come, okay? And so it says that the rabbis walked the streets of Jerusalem and said, Woe unto us, for the scepter has been taken away from Judah, and Shiloh has not come. And yet God's word will never be broken, right? So here's what happened. So they don't know it at this time. 
And this is what they did. They thought, that's it. The scepter has been gone from us. The scepter is gone from Judah. We're no longer uh, have any, any rulership over our own people. And Messiah hasn't come yet, but little did they know that Jesus um, was alive then. And that very year, he may have been 12 years old. So while they're in the streets crying that the scepter has passed from them and Messiah has not come, Jesus is maybe even 12 years old in the synagogue confounding or in the temple confounding the scholars of his day. Just kind of an interesting little side note. to Here's a, a prophecy that, that, that they thought passed over them, and, and just like the Bible says, it actually happened. Uh, if you look at chapter 49, verse 27, it says this. It says, Benjamin is a wolf that prowls. He devours his enemies in the morning, and in the evening he divides the plunder. My Bible says this, that the characterization of the descendants of Benjamin as a wolf uh, that prowls is that of, as a wolf that prowls. And it turns out they were famous as swordsmen and left-handed stone slingers. Left-handed stone slingers, okay? Now, that may not mean a whole lot to you, but those stones in those, in those um, uh, uh, slings, will, I mean, they, they, they had amazing accuracy. And you remember King David knew how to use a stone and a sling, and he took down the giant and hit him like right here and probably right in that place on the armament where there was no, on the uh, helmet where there was no armament. So, so that prophecy came true. And so all of the prophecies that, that Jacob spoke about his sons, they pretty much all came to pass. All right, now, in verse 20, 29, um, this is what Jacob says. These are his, par- his parting words. It says, Then Jacob told them, Soon I will die. Bury me with my father and grandfather, uh, Abraham and Isaac, in the cave in Ephron's field. This is the cave in the field of Machpelah near Mamre in Canaan, which Abraham bought from uh, Ephron the Hittite, uh, for a permanent burial place. There Abraham and his wife, Sarah, are buried. Isaac and his wife, uh, Rebekah, are buried. And there I buried Leah. It is the cave that my grandfather, Abraham, bought from the Hittites. Then when Jacob had finished his, this charge to his sons, he lay back in his bed, breathed his last, and died. And it's the end of an era. It's the end of the, the patriarchal era, but you could include Joseph in that. But Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, and that's it. He's gone. And he says this. He says, bury me with my fathers because he's in Egypt right now, right? He is the son of the promise. He's the heir of God's covenant with Abraham and Isaac. And by faith, he wanted to be buried in the land that God had promised Abraham. Uh, he, he wanted to be buried in the land that God had promised Abraham. Hebrews chapter 11, um, if you'd like to turn there, you can. Uh, this is what we call the Faith Hall of Fame. And it says this in verse 13. Speaking of these great patriarchs and these fathers of the faith, it says, All these people died still believing what God had promised them. They did not receive what was promised, but they saw it all from a distance and welcomed it. In other words, they had the promises of God, and even though the promises of God were not fulfilled even in their lifetime, the promises of God were not fulfilled even in their lifetime, they still believed it. So it says, all these people died still believing what God had promised. That's faith now when God makes a promise and it doesn't come to pass and you still believe it. And if it's not something that he'll do in you, then he'll do it in your children or your children's children. And God makes that promise too. Train up a child in the way that they should go, and in the end they will not depart from it. Okay, it's not a blanket, absolute formula promise, but it's a tendency. You train up your children, you, you train up your children the way that they should go. And there's a tendency they will not depart from it. They have to choose from themselves because there are no... Uh, grandchildren in the kingdom of God, only sons and daughters, which means we have to choose for ourselves. Okay? So, but they saw it all from a distance and welcomed it. That's faith, to be able to see something that has not come to pass yet at a distance and welcome it. They agreed that they were foreigners and nomads here on earth. Verse 14, obviously, people who say such things are looking forward to a country uh, they can call their own. 
If they had longed for the country uh, they came from, they would have gone back. But they were looking for a better place, a heavenly homeland. That is why God is not ashamed to be called their God, for he has prepared a city for them. And so Jacob makes a point, do not bury me here. The Egyptians were famous for the ability to bury people, to embalm people, uh, to uh, the, the, the famous uh, uh, Egyptian tombs and all of that, the mummy, mummification. Uh, Jacob could have been buried there, but he chose to be buried not in Egypt, but in an obscure place in a cave in Canaan because Canaan was the land of promise. And he wanted to reside there with Abraham, Isaac, their wives, and uh Rachel, and and he wanted to be there as well, all right? So the end of an era, the patriarch is gone. Now, how do they respond to that? It says, Joseph threw himself on his father and wept over him and kissed him. We know that the ancient Hebrews were not those who held back when somebody died. They let it go. They let it out. Uh, when Jesus came on the scene, there were people who actually, that was their job. They would go around in, in, uh, in processions and weep and wail. Uh, he was like, well, how do you know this person? Well, I don't, man. I'm just here to weep and wail, <laughs> you know? Oh, wow. Okay. Why? Because that was a way of showing honor and respect to the life of the person, and, 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 and that was a part of the process. And so, so there's, I think, about five different times that, 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 jo- that um, Joseph cries. Here's another time. He throws himself on his father, and he weeps over him, and he kisses him. Then Joseph told his morticians to embalm the body. The embalming process took 40 days, and there was a period of national mourning for 70 days. When the period of mourning was over, Joseph approached Pharaoh's advisors and asked them to speak to Pharaoh on his behalf. He told them, tell Pharaoh that my father made me swear an oath. He said to me, I'm about to die. Take my body back to the land of Canaan and bury me in our family's burial cave. Now, now I need to go and bury my father. After his spirit, uh, burial is complete, I will return without delay. Wow, 70 days of mourning. Now, according to tradition in, the, in, the, in, in Egypt, royalty would be mourned for 72 days. Here he's mourned for 70 days. Um. It shows you the kind of influence that he had, but even more so the influence that his son had. And so he needs to go to Pharaoh and request that he'd be able to bury him in their homeland. Verse 6, Pharaoh agreed to Joseph's request. Go and bury your father as you promised, he said. So Joseph went with a great number of Pharaoh's counselors and advisors, all the senior officers uh, of Egypt, Joseph also took his brothers and the entire household of Jacob, but they left their little children and flocks and herds in the land of Goshen. So a great number of chariots, cavalry, and people accompanied Joseph. Wow. That's uh, quite an entourage, if you would. It says, when they arrived at the threshing floor of Atad, Near the Jordan River, they held a very great and solemn funeral with a seven-day period of mourning for Joseph's father. The local residents, the Canaanites, renamed the place Abel Mirazim, for they said, this is a place of very deep mourning for for these Egyptians. So Jacob's sons did as he had commanded them. They carried his body to the land of Canaan and buried it there in the cave of Machpelah. Uh, This is the cave that Abraham had bought for a permanent burial place in the field of Ephron, the Hittite near Mamre. Okay, Uh, here is is the point of of all of that. Uh, And it says that they carried um, uh, Jacob's, oh yeah, verse 12 says, So Jacob's son did as he commanded them. Um, Jacob made a point to not only bless his sons, prophesy over his sons, speak about his son's future. But he also made a point to take care of his own burial arrangements. He, he made it a point to take care of his own burial arrangements. He had uh, somebody, um, uh, Joseph, in charge of everything. He told them exactly what he wanted them to do uh, because it was important to him that he would leave 
uh, no questions when that time came. And here's what a friend of mine would, would say about, about he used to sell life insurance. I don't know if he still does or not. But he said that, that he, he would talk to people about life insurance and explain policies and all that. And sometimes they'd say this, well, let me think about it, man. I, I'm not really sure if I want to do this right now. And he would say to them, okay, do me a favor. Right before you die, give me a call and we'll set you up on a policy. Now, the problem with that is that you don't know when you're going to die. And it seems like most people or a lot of people or some people, maybe it's not a lot of people, do much, do more planning for this life than they do for the life that is to come. There's more a concern about, about uh, 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 maybe retirement or more concern about maybe having a five-year or a ten-year plan. And there's nothing wrong with those things, but a lot of people spend most of their time concerned about life on this earth and don't think about the one to come. Well, I'm just going to live my life, man. I'm going I'm to have fun. It's going to be all about me. Well, okay, that's all fine and good. But by the way, you have no hope in that because you don't know if you'll be here tomorrow. I mean, what is hope? How can you have hope if you don't have God? Because if you don't have Christ, then you, you're, you don't know what's going to happen when you die. If you have Christ, even when you die, you have hope. You have faith in that what Jesus did uh, is for me, and even if, I, if, if what I don't get to accomplish on this earth doesn't happen, I will be able to have everything that God promises me in heaven. And he says, hey, you know what? Here's what I want you to do when, I'm, when it's time for me to go. Here's exactly what, take me out. I don't want to be buried in Egypt. This is not my place. You know, we, uh, um, uh, me and some uh, one of my buddies, you know, there's a couple of cats, you know, we rented a house years ago, and uh, and I knew I wouldn't be there long. <laughs> I, I didn't really know why, you know, uh, we, had, we had sold one house, and uh, I did, and then we we're going to, we were just renting another one. I should have never sold it, should have rented it out, but what did I know? I just said, time to move, and let's move and sell it, because my neighbor sold his, and I should have just rented that dog. That thing would have been paid for by now, Miss Melbourne. That would have been wise, but I didn't know, right? And so we're renting this house, and, and I didn't put up any pictures uh, you know, I didn't put up my, you know, Hearns Hagler poster or none of that stuff. You know, I still have that poster, by the way. Um, and uh, I didn't put any of that stuff up. And, 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 uh, and it was because I knew I wouldn't be there long. I, I knew I would not be there long. And, uh, and, and so in the course of that two, two and a half years, however long it was, it was probably under three years, you know, I met Don and, and got married and, and uh, you know, we were renting that place, and, and she walked in there and said, no, this ain't going to work right here. I said, no, no, we're moving out of here. You know, we're moving out of here, absolutely. But, uh, you know, it's like um, um, planning life for today, planning life for tomorrow, but most importantly, planning life for eternity. I think those are all important. Jesus said, don't worry about tomorrow in this context of anxiety. Okay, don't worry about what you'll eat, where you'll sleep, what you'll wear. That, that, those things were making people anxious. He didn't say, don't ever plan for tomorrow. Well, I'm living for today. I don't care about tomorrow. Wait a minute, man. Uh, that's, it's good to plan. I mean, Solomon, you know, proved that. Uh, but, but he said, don't be anxious of tomorrow. Uh, there's enough to worry about today. You know, Lord, may we... May we accomplish your will today. Lord, may we be good stewards of our time in the future, however much time that is. But most importantly, Lord, may we plan for eternity. That's why Jesus said, don't store up treasures on earth, but treasures in heaven, because those are the ones that last. And so, so living your life for the things that really matter and the things that last, that's a life of fulfillment. That's planning for tomorrow and preparing. See, when you, when you live your life for things that really matter, and what really matters to God are people. So when you live your life serving others and giving and being where God wants you to be, then not only are you planning for today and tomorrow, because that's going to determine how you live your life while you have it, but also you're building up stuff in heaven too. So that's kind of cool how that works. Joseph wanted to make a, Jacob wanted to make a point of that, all right? All right, so now... Um, says, verse 14, then, Joseph returned to Egypt and his brothers and all who had accompanied them. 
to his father's funeral. That must have been a long trip back. Lots to talk about. Talk, probably talked about a bunch of old stories. Probably didn't talk too much about the time that Joseph wasn't there because, after all, they sold him into slavery. Hey, guys, remember the time? Oh, never mind. Never mind. <laughs> Joseph, you weren't there. We don't really want to bring that up. Oh, I don't remember that. Oh, that must have been when y'all sold me into slavery. Like in, you know, okay. Verse 15 says this of Genesis 50. It says, but now that their father was dead, Joseph's brothers became afraid. Now Joseph will pay us back for all the evil we did to him, they said. So they sent his, this message to Joseph. Before our father died, he instructed us to say to you, forgive your brothers for the great evil they did to you. So we, the servants of the God of your father, beg you to forgive us. And when Joseph received the message, he broke down and wept. Why did he weep? What do you think? Why? What's that? They still don't get it. Don't get what? They, they don't get that everything's in God's plan. Okay, what else? Why do you think? Why do you think what? He forgave him a long time ago. Okay, what else? What else? Maybe they're still feeling conviction or guilt. Okay, good answers. Joseph weeps. Um, wait a minute, that was the previous one. Sorry. No, he did right. He did. Yeah, he broke down and wept. There it is, sorry. And then his brothers came and bowed low before him. We are your slaves, they said. Well, Joseph weeps. And I thought about this. Maybe he thought, and Joseph sort of said it, this Joseph here, of, of this Joseph. Because after all he did for them, they still questioned him. And they questioned his loyalty to the family. They questioned his word. They questioned his integrity. And they questioned his offer to forgive them. And I wrote this down. Don't we do that to God sometimes? Lord, did you really forgive me? How could you forgive me for that, Lord? I mean, I'm not sure, God, that I'm the man that you think I am. Lord, I'm not sure I'm the woman that you say that I am in your word. Lord, how could you really use me to make a difference in the world? No, Lord, I know what your word says, but I know me. And I'm this, I'm that, I'm the other. Warren Worsby says this. He says in a conversation that he had with one of his church members, I feel like the Lord has abandoned me, she said. I'm sure I'm heading for judgment, and I'm just not saved at all. He asked the question, what would you like God to do to assure you? He said, would you like a miracle? And she said, no, even Satan can do miracles. He said, would you like for him to speak to you from heaven? And she said, no, I'm not sure. Lots of voices speak. And then he said, would you like a personal message from God? Would that be helpful? And she goes, that would be helpful. And he said, great, let's open up God's word. And let's see what he has to say about your sins and your forgiveness. After all, when we open up the Bible, God opens his mouth and speaks to us. Do you believe that the promises in this book are for you? I hope that you do. I hope that you do. See, because God doesn't see us as we are, but as we will be. God knows what we can be and what we can do through him. Sometimes we don't even see as what God sees. God sees things in you. God sees uh, 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 ways that he can use you. God sees um, beyond your abilities. God sees plans that you don't even think you can accomplish. And that's all okay because you can't accomplish them through him. 
But if you, if you see yourself the way God sees you, that takes a lot of stuff off of you. <laughs> because that stuff stays Velcroed onto you, uh, 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 you know, past hurts, uh, mistakes that you've made, things that you can't go back and change. That if you did everything within you, you would go back and change it if you could, but you can't. And that sticks. There's guilt, there's shame, there's condemnation, there's words that were spoken over you, and all that stuff sticks to you. And then God's word comes, and he says the truth of who you are and the truth of what you've done. And one by one, that Velcro just comes right off if we'll allow him to do that. And so this is what Joseph says. Now the brothers humbly come to him and offer to be slaves. That shows repentance. So they were truly sorry for what they did, we can assume, and they're willing to show that by their actions. See, repentance leads to actions. When you're really sorry about something, your actions will reflect that. That's why when you come to know Christ, you must repent from your sin. That means you must turn away. And it's the ministry of the Holy Spirit to constantly get us to turn away from our sins. You know, when I first became a Christian, I didn't immediately turn away from all my sin. Did you repent? Of course I did. Well, why are you doing that? Oh, uh, because it feels good? Oh, no. Why? What do you want me to say? I mean, I'm struggling here. I'm just brand new. I'm fresh out of the oven, you know. Yeah, but it's the ministry of the Holy Spirit to convict you of those things so that you will turn in those things. Positionally, we stand clean before him, but we work out that salvation as well, right? And so they offer to make themselves slaves. Verse 19, there's, there's five things here, five things here. Joseph told them, don't be afraid of me. Is that great? Uh, they're, like, they're still trembling before their younger brother. And he senses that. He lets them off the hook right away. He doesn't say, you ought to be scared of me after what you did. He's already let that go a long time ago. And he goes, listen, don't be afraid. Don't be afraid. No, no, no. I mean, I'm, hey, I'm, we're afraid. No, don't come at me with fear. Don't be afraid. And he says this. He says, am I God to judge and punish you? As far as I am concerned, God turned into good what you meant for evil. Now watch this. He brought me to the high position I have today so I could save the lives of many people. And then fifthly, no, don't be afraid. I myself will take care of you and your families. And he spoke very kindly to them, reassuring them. Is that great? That's... um. Joseph's forgiveness. Don't be afraid of me. Am I God to judge and to punish you? It was not his place to judge his brothers. He was going to leave that up to God or somebody else, but he was not. He had the right to judge his brothers. But part of forgiving someone is the releasing of the right to go back and judge them. Doesn't mean what they didn't do was wrong. It just means you release the right to execute that judgment. God turned into evil, uh, into good, sorry, what you meant for evil. Here are two truths out of that profound statement. Two truths. God turned this into good. God turned this into good. And what you did was evil. Those are two truths. And he doesn't, he doesn't say, oh, I forget about it. Don't worry about what. No, 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 no. You meant evil. You did. That's what you did. I'm not holding that over your head. I'm just speaking the truth. You meant evil. But you know what? God turned it into good. You meant evil. God, those are two truths. And if all you say is you meant it for evil, there's no room for God. But if you say you meant it for evil, but God meant it for good, then you bring the two together. And that's where forgiveness lies, between the two. He acknowledges their guilt and what they did was wrong, but then he also says there's something bigger than that. What you did is beyond what you did. It's bigger than that. And if we believe in a sovereign God who is in control even of our lives, that there are things in our lives that are meant for evil that can be turned into good. 
St. Patrick. I got pinched three or four times at home Monday because I didn't wear green. I don't even think about green on Thanks I'm at St. Patrick's Day. I will probably never wear green just because of that. Just because everybody else is wearing green, like I'll probably wear it the day after. Because it's not about wearing green. St. Patrick was an amazing man of God. He was mightily used by God to baptize over 150,000 people, set up monasteries, uh, spread the gospel all over Ireland. Uh, the, 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 The masses rushed to hear his words. Why? Because at 16 years old, he was taken captive by pirates and sent to Ireland as a slave. Sounds familiar, doesn't it? St. Patrick had a little bit of religious upbringing, but not too much. And when he was working in a farm, doing what he was doing, he had a lot of time to think, and he had a lot of time to pray, and he had a lot of time to talk to God. And during his six years of, of, of captivity, he devoted his life to Christ through that prayer. St. Patrick came to the point of viewing his enslavement as God's test of his faith. And so during that, after that six years, he had a vision where he saw a child of Ireland reaching out their hands. And with that, he grew increasingly determined uh, to free the Irish from Druidism and converting them and to convert them to Christianity. And so fast forward to him being set free, and he actually ran for his life, for his freedom, being shipwrecked and eventually making his way back to England. But all the while, there's something churning in his heart, and that's going back to Ireland as a missionary. And he did. And he did. But the reason that those people could relate to him and, and so flock to his message was, first and foremost, it was just a sovereign act that God was doing. But secondly... In, that, in those six years of being a slave, he got to understand their hearts and their minds. So when he spoke to them, he knew where their hearts were. And so he had a great effect uh, in, in them hearing and receiving the gospel. So you could say, St. Patrick's might say that what those slave traders meant for evil, God meant for good. That's a mature person who can believe that when they're in the midst of it. It's, other, it's one thing to read about it or be on the outside of it. It's a whole other thing to be in the midst of it and hold on to that truth and say, no, God means this for good. And even if I never find out by faith, I will still declare God means it for good. Job said, Yo, though he slay me, yet will I trust in him, Job says. And so I said all of that to say this. Perhaps what has been evil in your life, God will make for good in order that you may save lives, save the lives of many. Perhaps what's been evil in your life, God will make for good in order that you may save the lives of many. Perhaps what was meant for evil, whether you did it to yourself or whether someone else did it to you, maybe God will what was meant for evil in your life will be meant for good. That's called redemption. That's where God takes us in all of our failures, in all of our frailties, in all of the silly things that we've done and the hurtful things that people have done to us, and he redeems it all that you might be used by him and lead many others to life. I tell you that when when I speak to someone who's been divorced, oh, I understand. I was 25 years old. I was married for a year. I was not a Christian. It was hell on earth. I didn't really believe in hell, but I believed I was in hell. I don't know what happened. I do not know what happened. I used to pinch myself thinking, surely I'm going to wake up right now. It was a nightmare. I'm like, how? I don't even know how I got in that situation. I said, listen to my mom and my sister. I know that. I told Sister Dawn, I said, listen, I got to tell you right up. My mama don't like you. This ain't going to (laughs) work. Learned my lesson last time. 
Moms were like, oh, I think she's going to be all right, son. That's all I needed to hear. So when I talk to someone who's been through a divorce, yeah, I understand. Well, this is what I feel. You know, I get it. No, this is none. And then, yeah, yeah, I understand. And here's what's going to happen next. And then you're going to feel this. But here's how you get through this. And, you know, maybe the fact that you and I are sitting here talking today is just God trying to speak. Now, how do I know that? Because I went through it. Yeah. When, when, when things that are meant for evil in your life, when you get through them, and then you can talk to someone else about it, and God will do that. God will bring people your way that are right in the middle of where you've been. He said, man, I was in that pit. I was in that pit 10 years. <laughs> in my case, I was in that pit a year. Felt like 50. <laughs> it did. You know, and then you begin to minister. Yeah? St. Patrick, why in the world would you go back to Ireland? Are you kidding me? I'm not going anywhere near that. Ah, but then the love of God in his heart. And he leads a nation to Christ. That's what St. Patrick's Day is all about. Interesting, huh? That's a whole new perspective on pain and suffering. How God will use that because you've been through it and bring others your way. I heard a story today about a gal at a church who, who comes out of a life of prostitution and how she goes into the brothels and prays for prostitutes. They let her in there, and she prays for them. They, she, they wait for her to come. They can't wait for her to get there. And then she prays for the madams and prays for the whoever runs in places. She prays for them too. They let, now how is that? Let me tell you how. First of all, it's a sovereign act of God. It's just what God does. And secondly, because, you know, when they weep in her arms, when they tell her how worthless they feel, when they tell her they'll do anything to get out but don't know how to get out, she goes, I know. I understand. Yep, been there, done that. Look at me. I've been right where you've been, honey, and I'm out, and I'm free. And if the sun sets you free, you'll be free indeed. I tell you what, when that lady speaks, those women listen. Because <laughs> she's, she's been there. Yeah. So perhaps what's been evil in your life, God will make for good in order that you may save lives of many. Joseph didn't have Romans eight twenty eight. God works all things together for good to those who love God and those who are called according to his purpose. He didn't have that, but he had the truth of Romans 8, 28, that God was working something together for good in his life in Egypt. Our lives are not in the hands of man, but of God, who ultimately runs the show. Can you say amen to that? It's true. <laughs> Listen, it was by faith. Let's, let's read on to this because now, all right, we're, we're at the end of Genesis. Can you believe it? What are we going to do next? I don't know. Verse 22, so Joseph and his brothers and their families continued to live in Egypt. Joseph was 110 years old when he died. He lived to see three generations of descendants of his son Ephraim and their child and the child of Manasseh's son Machir. I, I, that's a cool name, Machir. I wonder what that means. Like if I had a... We're probably not going to have any more kids, but if I had a dog, I'm going to call him Makir. Come here, Makir. Mackie Mack. Anyway, uh, who were treated as if they were his own. Verse 24. Now, 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 now we come to the end of, of, of the last of the patriarchal line, Joseph. And, and he said, soon I will die, Joseph told his brothers. But God will surely come to you and lead you out of this land of, of Egypt. He will bring you back to the land he vowed to give to the descendants of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Okay? Then Joseph, now, now, what's he planning here? Pay attention. What's he planning? He's planning for the future. He's about to die, but he's planning for them and for life after that. He goes, now, Joseph made the sons of Israel swear an oath, and he said, when God comes to lead us back to Canaan, you must take my body back with you. So Joseph died at the age of 110. They embalmed him, and his body was placed in the ground, no, in a coffin in Egypt. It was, Hebrews 11.22 says this, It was by faith that Joseph, when he was about to die, said confidently that the people of Israel would leave Egypt. He even commanded them to take his bones with them when they left. According to this passage, 
in Hebrews 11.22, Joseph was never buried in Egypt. His coffin was above ground for 400 years. Give or take a little bit. Until it was taken back to Canaan. What was he saying? Don't bury me here in Egypt. I've been here since I was 17 years old. I'm 110. No, I do not want to be buried here. He was saying the same thing uh, that uh, uh, Jacob said. It was a silent witness to all those years, uh, for all those years that Israel was going back to the promised land just as God had said. During all of that time, think of all of that time. During all that time, the children of Israel saw Joseph coffin, and they might have asked, why was that coffin there? Why isn't that coffin buried? Because the great man Joseph did not want to be buried in Egypt, but in the promised land that God will one day, even in his death, it was a testimony to faith in God. Don't bury me here. Take that, don't. Put me in a, you can embalm me, you can put me in all kind of coffin, you can mummify me, you can put me, but do not bury me here. And it was a constant reminder of the promise of God being fulfilled. George Mueller, a remarkable man of faith who ran orphanages in England, cared for over 100,000 orphans. In a sermon preached when he was 75 years old, how would how, you like to be 75 years old still bringing the word of God? You're bringing it. <laughs> he said 30,000 times in his 54 years as a Christian, he received the answer to prayer on the same day he prayed it. 30,000 times, like he's keeping track. And when you take care of 100,000 orphans, you need faith. <laughs> not all at once, but you get the point. But he said this, not all of his prayers were answered so quickly. He told of one prayer that he brought to God about 20,000 times uh, uh, over more, uh, or more in 11 years. But he still trusted God for the answer. Can you imagine this man? And maybe he knew he prayed for this 10, 15, 20 times a day. Maybe he just knew that. And he did the math and said, Lord, I prayed for this 20,000 times. And I'm believing you're going to do it. That's faith. He said, I hope in God, I pray on and look for the answer. Therefore, beloved brethren and sisters, go on waiting upon God. Go on praying. Go on waiting upon God. Go on praying. Joseph was 17 years old when he was taken to Egypt. He lived there 93 years. 51 of those years he lived close to his family, and he dies. He probably outlived most of his brothers, and his grandsons knew his burial uh, grandchildren knew his burial wishes. His, con his coffin was a constant reminder of the promise of God while they were in Egypt. For them to have faith in God. When they were slaves in Egypt, getting beat down, they could look to that coffin for hope. They, they had to carry that coffin in the wilderness for 40 years. And it was a testimony to the faith that he had and that God would one day fulfill. Could you imagine that? Why are we carrying this? Are you crazy? This is Joseph's body. It's been over 400 years. And we're trudging this thing through the wilderness 40 years? Yes, because he, so he said, bury me in the, in the promised land. And you know what? They did. How amazing is that? Talk about a legacy. It's one thing when you live a legacy and you create a legacy while you're alive. It's a whole nother thing for that legacy to continue on after you die. May we live a life that leaves a legacy even after we die. So we come to the end of Genesis. What started in the beginning, God ends with the promise of God that that land would be inhabited by the people. We've seen the life of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob and all of their highs and lows, and there are a lot of lows, a lot of highs, a lot of lows, regular people, people that God used. Gives us faith and gives us hope, doesn't it? So we leave on a promise of God 
that there was going to be a land that they would inherit. And we, we leave this with hope and with faith, fired up, knowing that times are going to be difficult in the book of Exodus, but God will visit his people, and God will always raise up a deliverer. Amen? Let's pray. Father God, in Jesus' name, thank you for our time together tonight. Thank you for your word. What an amazing, amazing book Genesis is. It is the book of beginnings. We have seen more beginnings than we can remember in the book of Genesis. The beginning of life. The beginning of sin. The beginning of faith. The beginning of promises. The beginning of marriage. The beginning of man. The beginning of woman. The beginning of children. The first sin. The first lie. The first mention of redemption. Lord Jesus, um, what a journey. Thank you for it, God. Would you strengthen your people in this place, oh God, that we would draw near to you. And Lord, our hearts are for those here tonight who may not know you in a personal way. And Lord, I know that I don't know where everyone's heart is. Sometimes I'm not even sure where my heart is. But I know what your word says. And your word says, says to come to you. Your word says that he who has the son has life and that life more abundant. And Lord, that that this is a divine opportunity for, for people right now. Today is a divine. Uh, it's a divine invitation to come to you. This God who can secure and keep an entire nation together in a foreign land. This God who accomplishes his promises and will bring them to pass. In the nation, in a family, and even in us as individuals. So, Holy Spirit, we ask that you would pull on the hearts of anyone here who doesn't know you, that they would come to know you today, the fullness of what it means to be a son of God, to be a daughter of God. Lord, we thank you for your uh, gentle proddings and promptings. And Lord, just sharing my testimony today, knowing that there was something in my heart that was drawn to you, and I did not know what it was. It was you. Lord, draw your people to yourself. You are faithful, and we thank you for that faithfulness. We need it. Lord, meet the needs of those here in this place today. Whatever it might be, meet those needs in a way that you uh, will, um, according to your plan and your purposes. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Amen.